Hi, my name is James Somerville-Meekle and I'm Political Relations Manager at the Countryside Alliance. I caught up recently with George Eustace, MP for Camborne and Redruth, who until March this year was Minister of State for Farming and Fisheries in the UK Government. George was the longest-serving minister in DEFRA since the department was created in 2001. I interviewed him for the Countryside Alliance magazine, which comes out in May, and I started by asking him why he resigned from the government. So the reason I resigned from the government ultimately is that Parliament had taken direct control of events. And I think, um, <clears throat> to be blunt, uh, the government, and both the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, had uh, failed to lead a consensus uh, in Parliament about what a settlement to this political crisis would look like. Um, but also um, had signalled very clearly that collectively the Cabinet uh, and the Prime Minister um, <clears throat> weren't willing to leave without, uh, without an agreement. And I think if it's the case that um, the government is unwilling to leave without an agreement, it really is imperative that we try to drive out a consensus in Parliament uh, about what cross-party people can get behind. And so um, I resigned in order to um, take part in that process. And I first entered politics um, over uh, the European issue. First mm, to indeed. campaign yep. against mm -hmm. the Euro. Um, <clears throat> I campaigned to leave. Uh, the last three years of my life in DEFRA have been dedicated to crafting new bills on fisheries and agriculture. And I feel um, desperately sad uh, that all of that uh, work is in danger now of being uh, lost altogether. And that is why I've been advocating a different approach, which is that we would rejoin the European Free Trade Association, uh, which the UK founded uh, in 1960, along with other countries such mm. as Norway, uh, Sweden, Portugal and Austria. Uh, and actually um, remain members of the EEA. So uh, a model that is similar to Norway, it means that we would stay in <clears throat> close regulatory alignment on things like product standards and food labelling and uh, SPS issues, uh, but it would mean that we would be free to have an independent trade policy and that we'd also have an independent agriculture policy and an independent fisheries policy mm. uh, too. And I think that that is um, uh, an area where we could get a consensus in Parliament and a final settlement mm. to this uh, uh, horrendous dispute that's now been raging for three years already. Yeah. Um, so what's the obstacle in terms of getting there then? I mean, why, why do you think that so far Parliament has not come to a to view that, that that approach, the one that you set out, is where, the, where we should be going? Well, um, you know, last night, that's uh, um, Monday night, we actually uh, did get the Labour Party to support a version uh, of a Norway option. Mm. And we also got the SNP to support a version of the Norway option. Um, sadly, what's missing at the moment, and I hope that there will be uh, today as we speak some light mm. emerging from Cabinet, but sadly what's missing at the moment uh, is a willingness uh, on the part of the government to participate in that discussion in a constructive way. Uh, instead, uh, what they've tended to do is sit on their hands and um, either try to frustrate uh, Parliament um, or um, indeed try to ignore what Parliament says. And I don't think that's helpful when we're trying to get mm. a resolution to this crisis. Yeah. Um, and obviously uh, the EU and its institutions are well known to you. Being in the fisheries and farming brief, obviously a lot of exposure to politics in Europe. From that experience, are you surprised at how the EU has behaved in these negotiations? And why, um, or rather, did you think 
it would be as difficult as it now seems to be, the process of leaving. Um, I think I suspected it would be, but I don't think it needed to be. I mean, in my five years, five and a half years, um, obviously there's an agri-fish uh, EU council on a monthly basis, which is far more than other departments. Uh, in my uh, five years, I saw 10 presidencies come and go, um, hmm. each coming in at the start of their six-month stint, talking about their priorities and what they hope to achieve, uh, each going out lamenting the fact that they'd achieved very little. Uh, I remember one occasion where the uh, Italian minister at the start of their presidency dispensed with the notes he'd been given and simply said, we'll talk about the usual stuff and probably won't get much done. Um, <laughs> Who was your favourite president in that time? Oh, Have you got God, one? I, no, I haven't. <laughs> of course, right. we skipped us as a result of Brexit. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, very few of them actually achieved very much. So I, I, I'm familiar with EU processes in mm. that uh, things uh, in the EU move at a glacial pace. Uh, the EU is not agile. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to making decisions quickly. Uh, and it tends to um, lead to sort of incremental evolution of things rather than radical change. Mm. And so my reflection on that is that rather than trying to negotiate a bespoke deal from scratch, as the government tried to do, it would have been better in the first instance to fall back on our existing rights. And we are a signatory to the EEA, uh, mm. a signatory to that treaty. Uh, our rights and obligations under that remain intact. And if we did a simple manoeuvre, which is to rejoin uh, EFTA, uh, mm. we would <clears throat> join the EFTA pillar of that EEA agreement. Mm. And we would have a, um, an exit plan from the European Union that could be delivered within uh, three to six months. So rather than re reinvent the wheel, basically fall back on what's there already. Exactly. At least in the, uh, as the first move. Uh, Recognising yeah. that mm. um, the European Union is incredibly slow yeah. and cumbersome to agree anything. And it is always therefore better to fall back on an existing treaty right and to uh, allow things to evolve from that point. Mm. Um, well, we'll see if your, uh, uh, if your colleagues agree in the next few uh, days, days and months. Um, now, your time in government, you were there from 2013 to early this year, all in DEFRA. Um, how does it feel being back on the back benches? Are you relieved or was it a bit of you wishing actually you were there still on the front bench handling the fisheries bill and the agriculture bill? As you mentioned before, um, I think um, I think I'd put it this way. Um, I um, uh, really enjoyed my time uh, in Defra. Um, it's a department that's got um, incredible expertise and many talented individuals. Um, it's a department where civil servants join it for the right reasons, um, uh, whereas some other departments they might be disinterested in the subject mm. matter. Uh, or might join departments like the Treasury because they think they can swagger around and <laughs> boss other departments about. Uh, in DEFRA, you get genuinely good, decent people who care about the um, subject matter they're dealing with. And so, um, do I miss the team that I worked with in DEFRA? Yes, of course I do. Um, <clears throat> but do I regret my decision to leave? Um, no, uh, I don't, because the truth is, I put a huge amount of work into the Agriculture Bill and the Fisheries mm. Bill. Uh, but unless we actually deliver Brexit, uh, all of the work that I've done over the past three years uh, will be for the birds. And you see that as a very uh, real threat. I think it's a very, there's a genuine threat that we will now lose Brexit uh, altogether. And given that that threat is real, I wanted the freedom uh, in these final weeks 
uh, to be able to at least try to contribute to shaping a consensus mm. so that we might salvage something from this uh, rather sorry situation. Yeah, um, and it was, well, almost three years ago that we had that referendum um, campaign and you were there before it, during it and, and, and after it. And I just wonder, what was the, the mood like in DEFRA in those few days after the vote? I think um, immediately after, uh, for a period of a few days, there was uh, a sense of shock. Um, it's fair to say, uh, I think right through our civil service, and DEFRA would be no exception, uh, that probably a majority of people would have supported Remain rather than uh, leave. Um, just if you uh, look at the demographic of the types of people who live in London and work in Whitehall departments, um, uh, that, uh, that would be a reasonable assumption. Uh, however, what was very interesting in DEFRA is that uh, as the months went by and the department turns itself to actually thinking outside the box about what good policy looks like, it was an incredibly refreshing and liberating experience. And so uh, on fisheries, uh, all of those involved in uh, fisheries policy able to think really creatively from first principles about what a good policy would look like that's fit for the 21st century. Uh, likewise on agriculture, um, no more arguing with 27 other countries and then uh, coming out with uh, crackpot ideas like the three-crop rule and um, <clears throat> arguing over whether a cabbage is the same thing as a cauliflower for the purposes of that rule. Um, none of that. Uh, actually an ability to uh, develop a coherent programme over a decade uh, to radically change agriculture policy uh, to something that would be um, far more supportive of our farmers and uh, made far more sense and was more coherent. Mm. And, um, you know, that policy, designed, shaped, crafted into a bill, uh, all within a matter uh, of about a year. Mm. Oh, well, let's stick on the, on the subject of policy outside the EU and the agriculture bill. Obviously, you were the minister responsible for drafting that, taking it through its initial stages in the Commons, and there were a whole raft of amendments to that bill. Um, I must confess one or two that might bear our fingerprints. Um, I just wonder, looking at it now, outside of DEFRA, do you think that a coherent piece of legislation can emerge and get through the Commons on, on agriculture? Yes, uh, absolutely. Mm. And uh, all of the work that has gone in to get that bill through second reading and committee stage um, <clears throat> won't be wasted uh, if actually we can resolve the wider question uh, about how we're going to leave the European Union and then continue to try to make progress during the rest of this uh, session of Parliament mm. and then potentially roll the bill over into a second session. So <clears throat> there is still a prospect, uh, depending on how we resolve the current political crisis, but a prospect that the bill uh, could come back for report stage and could actually be moved uh, expeditiously to its uh, later stages, uh, meaning that it could then become what's called a carryover bill mm. uh, and commence in the, in the next session. But obviously as time wears on, uh, mm. the possibility to do that diminishes, and uh, we're also going to, uh, at some point soon, have a change in uh, Prime Minister, change in party leader, uh, and at that point <clears throat> it, um, it may become more questionable about whether that bill can carry on or mm. whether it will need to start again. Right, so that, that is a, uh, a serious question in terms of whether the bill will return. There's no guarantee about that. Uh, no guarantee, mm. but it's certainly uh, possible uh, that we could um, 
uh, or the government, it's not me anymore, but the government, <laughs> if it could resolve the wider crisis um, and get a settlement, uh, the government would then be able to resume um, the uh, various stages of the bill. I see. Um, now, one of the amendments that we um, worked with colleagues to, to, to table was on um, upland landscapes and communities. I know that you've spoken about this um, in, the, in the past. Um, what do you think the prospects are for, for upland farmers uh, in this country, outside the EU, based on the framework in the bill and the policies that you're seeing being developed at the moment? Um, I actually think if you move to a system uh, that's not just about arbitrary uh, payments based on land area, but which is uh, much more about the delivery of public goods uh, on land and rewarding farmers for what they do in that space, it's actually a very exciting prospect for the uplands because the potential <clears throat> to deliver things such as uh, climate change mitigation through peatland restoration, um, flood mitigation by holding water um, uphill, um, um, all sorts of improvements in habitats, uh, work to improve water quality, um, opportunities for public access. All of those things, uh, I would argue, are actually um, in a position where there's more scope for the uplands to deliver them. And so a system that rewards farmers based on the public goods they uh, deliver, uh, in my mind, could actually be, um, far from being bad, could be beneficial for the uplands. And let's face it, the uh, until recently, the upland rate and uh, still the moorland rate <coughs> is far lower than the uh, average single farm payment. Mm -hmm. And um, <coughs> at the moment, our system is rather upside down in that it, uh, it gives less money to those who potentially are delivering more by way of public goods. Mm. Um, well, as, as you know, one of the concerns of upland farmers is about the talk of rewilding, which seems to be increasing on the, on the agenda in this place. Um, the incoming chair of Natural England, Tony Juniper, has said that he would like to experiment uh, with rewilding projects on 1% of the country's land mass. And some of our members, particularly people who farm in the uplands and, and, and shoot, have some uh, concerns about that because they see the uplands as being the sort of the first place that 1% might, might be. Um, what's your... What's your view on rewilding, and, and, and do you think that 1% target is realistic and sensible and achievable? I generally don't believe in having targets of that sort, um, <clears throat> but I think um, there are some uh, quite interesting, successful projects on, uh, on rewilding, and uh, if particular landowners are interested in uh, exploring those areas, well, uh, I'm, I'm open to uh, consideration to that. But I think it's unhelpful to set some kind of 1% target mm. um, uh, before you've even started. Mm. And I've personally always been rather sceptical of that, that, uh, <clears throat> that it made sense to reintroduce lynxes just so that ramblers can watch a lynx mm. walking off with a lamb in its mouth uh, and think, isn't that uh, marvellous? Um, I've had a, a, a sort of inherent scepticism about um, some of these things, but I've uh, also... I never ruled it out entirely because mm. I think there, are, there have been some uh, successful projects. Mm. Does that make you worry, though? I mean, when you see someone like Mr. Juniper coming into Natural England uh, with some of the, the views that he has, I mean, do you think that um, uh, that actually that there may be more of a sort of ideological approach to some of these issues rather than the sort of pragmatism that you were talking about earlier on? Um, well, Natural England is um, an agency, an arm's length body. 
and its job is to implement government policy. <clears throat> um, it is not the role of uh, Natural England uh, to make policy. And even with um, uh, a new chairman, Tony Juniper there, um, he doesn't have a right to make policy. Mm. Uh, it could only be uh, government ministers uh, who could sanction a policy either on rewilding uh, or indeed on anything else that, um, uh, uh, that um, Tony Juniper might talk about. Mm. His job as a, as a chairman of a board is to uh, ensure the good administration of that board and to ensure that Natural England delivers on ministerial priorities. Mm. And we wish him well in that, in that task. Um, turning to rural communities, one issue that keeps on coming up time and time again is, should there be a rural strategy for England? What's your view on that? We've had several attempts uh, at this. So there was, <clears throat> when David Cameron first came to power, the, um, uh, there, was, there was talk of rural proofing uh, every policy, mm. where policies would have to go through some sort of rural test. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that I, idea is I, I a think good it one? was, but I've seen lots of these ideas come and go, and I think the problem is they, uh, they remain quite nebulous and difficult to define <clears throat> and difficult to um, ensure that every other government department um, properly thinks about these things. And my conclusion, having seen several attempts <clears throat> and, you know, countryside commissions and uh, um, uh, rural proofing and all sorts of uh, mm. things, is that actually uh, what you need more than anything else are ministers in DEFRA who will um, put their foot down and be willing to block other government proposals mm. unless they've taken proper regard for rural interests. And do you think DEFRA has that weight at the moment? It definitely has that weight at the mm. moment. And mm. um, Michael Gove has not been shy in uh, using uh, his political clout mm. uh, to ensure uh, that the interests and um, priorities of DEFRA uh, are accommodated uh, in uh, other bits of policy right across government. Mm. Um, now, one of the decisions, one of the um, possibilities of leading the EU has created is developing our own rural development programmes and we know the government's intention to lump that together in the, in the UK Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, I just, what's, your, what's your view on, on that sitting with local government and housing rather than being in DEFRA? Does, does a bit of you wish that actually responsibility that that has sat at least in part with your former department? Well I think it's very easy to get territorial uh, about these things. And um, <clears throat> certainly uh, I would absolutely want DEFRA to um, retain a role in co-designing uh, any future rural programme. However, I myself was of the view that in terms of um, where it made most sense for different funds to sit <clears throat> and successor funds, uh, administering a new agriculture scheme, an agri-environment scheme, and a farm productivity scheme uh, were absolutely within DEFRA's remit and should not mm. be anywhere else. If you're talking about things closer to the leader uh, funding, <clears throat> where it was more mm. general support for uh, rural <clears throat> communities and rural businesses, including things such as rural tourism, I think it's hard to argue that that necessarily sits more comfortably with DEFRA than say with the local enterprise partnerships. Mm. And uh, my experience of things like the growth <clears throat> programme is that unless there is a, um, a pot of money that's got rural written on it, it's very hard to get local enterprise partnerships to 
uh, think as uh, creatively or actively as they should about rural interests. <clears throat> but nevertheless, if there is a pot of money that, has, uh, that is defined as a rural uh, strand of their funding, mm. uh, then you do get them to engage. And actually, they are probably better placed uh, than most to come up with creative schemes that work for their own mm. uh, particular geography. Okay. So possibly it's a ring-fenced fund within... The UK that is what I would like to see, be uh, a ring-fenced rural, <coughs> ring mm. rural strand yeah. uh, in the Shared Prosperity Fund I see. Uh, that would be administered by, the, uh, in my view, the local enterprise partnerships mm. and um, could involve the retention of some of the expertise that has been built up on some of the leader groups, mm. uh, you know, the lag groups. Or yeah. There's a theme developing here, so not reinventing the wheel, looking at what we've got at the moment <coughs> and making that work sort of more effectively, I suppose. That's right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a broader question about rural uh, communities, and obviously the decision to leave the EU has had an impact on rural issues, you know, far and above the obvious ones like fisheries and agriculture. And I just wonder whether you think that the needs of rural communities and the rural economy are being properly fed into those policy discussions. And I think particularly of things like immigration, uh, where the government has said there will be no permanent low-skilled route for migrants. Um, and a very, very limited uh, pilot seasonal workers scheme. Um, do you think, I mean, you spoke earlier on about DEFRA having sort of, um, um, Mr. Gove having sort of clout in, in government. Do you think that's translating into the policies that we're seeing at the moment? Well, um, one of the things about being uh, freed of the, the burden <laughs> of uh, ministerial collective responsibility is that you are able to talk more freely uh, about some of these issues. And um, I've written recently uh, about immigration policy. Uh, I strongly disagree with the um, current direction of travel of uh, government policy. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe in a so-called skills-based uh, immigration policy. Uh, I actually think, um, in reality, we have no shortage of underemployed graduates uh, in this country uh, who uh, think they're too good to get their hands dirty and think mm. they should be earning over £30,000 a year. Um, <clears throat> what we actually lack in this country are sufficient numbers of people who will do hard graft, um, difficult work, uh, in manual work in fields, and I've mm. done it myself for 10 years, so I know it's, uh, uh, it can be tough, but that's, that's where our labour shortages are. And so I think that any um, future immigration policy has to recognise that, uh, we should be opening a provision in Tier 3 uh, for so-called uh, lower-skilled uh, migration. And we should, in my view, uh, immediately, uh, or if not this year, then next year, um, switch the SOAR scheme from being a pilot to being a fully operational scheme, uh, running with a, um, uh, you know, a quota of at least 30,000 um, mm. uh, overseas uh, migrants to do seasonal labour. Mm. Okay. Um... And turning to, actually I should just say that, my, my first job after leaving school was picking strawberries in Kent, so right. <laughs> yes. uh, maybe that should be compulsory for every school leaver, uh, I, don't, I don't know. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier these days. Yeah? Well this is where they were on the floor, it was, uh, yeah. In, um, a final slightly more political question, uh, if, I, if I can, which is that um, rural areas are the, the heartland of the Conservative vote, and certainly in years where... Uh, fewer Conservative MPs have been returned to this place. It has been the rural areas that have kind of stood, stood the test of political challenges. Um, but when people in the countryside see moves to uh, ban the live export of animals, time spent in things like electronic collars for dogs, 
uh, or perceived focus on uh, some of the environmental issues. Um, some people wonder whether the, uh, uh, the Green Blob, as Owen Patterson once described them, have more influence in DEFRA than perhaps they should. Do you think that's a fair um, observation and challenge? And do you think the Conservatives still speak for rural Britain? Uh, yes, I think the Conservatives definitely speak for um, rural Britain. And I think um, uh, my view on this is um, it's wrong to uh, uh, create a kind of tribal divide between sort of town and country. Um, in that um, I'm very much someone who grew up in the countryside from a farming family that had been farming for at least uh, six generations mm. and uh, had uh, uh, run a livestock farm. Um, I am a uh, country mouse, uh, as it were. But um, it was me uh, who uh, pressed the case most strongly for us to have CCTV in slaughterhouses because I believe... Uh, that we should take animal welfare seriously. Uh, as somebody who was uh, a farmer and a livestock farmer and um, uh, loaded cattle on the lorry to mm. send them off uh, to slaughter, it mattered to me to know uh, that they were going uh, to a slaughterhouse that would uh, treat them with dignity and respect uh, uh, at that end. And I think that matters to most farmers. Mm. And I, th um, I actually think you know, other issues such as... Uh, um, shock collars um, uh, on dogs. Um, I've not come across um, farmers who mm. use these things. It tends to be um, <clears throat> young men in inner cities who are breeding status dogs and trying to um, train them to be violent to uh, use such devices. Um, <clears throat> so I, I actually think the animal welfare issue is an important one and should matter to people whether they are from the countryside uh, or from the towns. And mm. I think it's unhelpful uh, to try to create a, um, a divide, a cultural divide mm. Uh, mm. on that when it's actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue in my view about having sensible proportionate laws. Mm. And just, just one um, final question on that. I was looking at the Agriculture Bill. There was provision in there to um, make financial assistance available for farmers who have higher welfare standards. Uh, I think the principle of that is something that certainly we at the Alliance agree with. I think one of our concerns is that um, you know, these, these arguments are or can be contentious and they can be political. And there is a risk that if you're going to reward farmers for farming to um, higher standards, that there's got to be a sort of science evidence base behind that to make sure that actually if you're giving public money to people for the way they farm, that that is definitely sort of objectively a higher welfare type of farm system. Do you think that there are sufficient processes in place, or will be, to make sure that that, that can be taken forward in this and any change of government that might want to uh, sort of use that to, 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 to favour their own particular view on animal welfare? Yes. Well, I, I, the question you've just put um, sounds very reminiscent of the sort of advice I would get from, uh, from officials. Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> well, uh, because, um, uh, to put it bluntly, um, there was a great deal of internal uh, resistance um, Internalism among within policy department. officials right. um, <clears throat> to the idea of including animal welfare mm. as a public good. And uh, I strongly rejected that and insisted on its inclusion because I think conceptually 
uh, it is no different uh, than recognising um, higher environmental standards as a public good. Uh, there are <coughs> uh, some systems that some people say are good for the environment, others say <coughs> are probably not as good for the environment as some claim. Mm. But nevertheless, in policy you always have to make a judgement. And uh, for me, I think it is entirely possible to judge that a particular approach to livestock husbandry uh, probably does lead to higher animal welfare outcomes, um, but has uh, higher implied costs. And it is therefore absolutely right and proper for the government to be willing to help farmers meet those costs mm. if it's a system we want to encourage. And the debate that I would sometimes have with uh, vets is... Some people would say, well, the problem with um, a free-range system uh, of uh, poultry production, let's say uh, chicken, is that um, a chicken that leaves uh, the barn is more likely to be picked up by a hawk, mm. um, sometimes more likely to get lame or to have some other uh, affliction that affects it. Um, but is it a, uh, does it live a better life? And I would say that it does. <clears throat> um, it's a little bit like saying... Um, uh, if I locked you in this room, uh, there's no danger that you'd be run over by a bus. Uh, but is that a life? And I actually think that a life well lived is increasingly how we need to be uh, considering animal welfare issues, not just <clears throat> viewing it as uh, straightforward you know, levels of lameness or um, uh, you know, potential mortality. Um, mm. And I think... Um, I think our understanding of some of these animal welfare issues has developed uh, in the last 10 years and we need to make sure that uh, our policy, both regulatory but also uh, government support, uh, moves with that um, change mm. in understanding. Excellent. Um, a life well lived, that should be an aim I think for both man and, uh, and an animal. Um, and on that note, George, I'll, um, I'll leave it there. But thank you very much indeed. That was really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.